believe that our God is healer, awesome in power. Well, we ought to live like that, right? That's what the book of Revelation is all about. If, if this is who we worship, if this is the God that we bow down to, then we ought to live into that reality in that way. If God is for us, then who can be against us? Would you bow with me? Father, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be ever pleasing to you. God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, good morning, church. How are we? It's good to be back with you. I, uh, I longed for you so much I had to grow a little bit of facial hair just to show that I was in exile and to show fa how fast I could grow it too. Well, Andrew Fisher is probably not a household name. Anyone? Anyone know? And if you have a you know, friend named Andrew Fisher, I'm not talking about him. Anyone know who Andrew Fisher is? Well, back in 2005, Andrew Fisher became one of the first viral sensations, right? Social media was sort of just kicking off. It wasn't a real thing to have viral videos or memes or anything like that. But Andrew Fisher was a bright guy. He was also a poor college student at the time, so maybe a little bit desperate too. But he got thinking that he liked this website called eBay a lot. Maybe you've heard of eBay, I don't know. He was pretty good at eBay too. And he started seeing these weird things appear on eBay. And he said, well, I can be weird too. And so he said, I bet you if I auctioned off something really bizarre for a lot of money, somebody would pay for it. So what did he come up with? Well, he decided he would auction off his forehead for 30 days. Not a permanent auction, just a 30-day period to any company that wanted to pay for advertising space on his forehead as he walked around his large college campus. The bidding started at one cent. By the time the bidding closed, Andrew Fisher pulled in $50,000. $50,000. By the way, it was well worth it for him. This is a picture of him after for 30 days. Well worth it for him and also well worth it for Snorstop. It was one of the most effective advertising campaigns of the decade because it went viral. He was on all the talk shows. He was all over the internet. Social media was starting to, to pick him up. Um, and it became this, this well worth it adventure for him. And I'm sure for Snorstop as well. I told Chantel about uh, this story, and her immediate reaction was, imagine what we could get for your forehead. Look at all the extra real estate on that. I love my wife. That's, that's what you get for a marketing degree, right? That's what happens. I tell you. Well, chapter 13 in Revelation tells us that the mark of the beast will put, be put on the forehead and on the hand of those who belong to the enemy. Now, I'm pretty sure, I'm going to go out on a limb here, I'm pretty sure that Snorstop is not the mark of the beast, all right? Let's just get that out there. It is not the enemy. In fact, I'm pretty sure for some couples, Snorstop is probably more like a savior than an enemy. The winning bid was not some 
version of the number 666, it was $50,000. But I still think that this example serves as a, a pretty good illustration for what this chapter is talking about, for what this, this part of John's vision is trying to get at. That is, the idea of being branded. I mean, that's as simple as we can make it. The idea of being stamped with the image, the mark of someone to whom you belong. Because like it or not, it might have been well worth it for Andrew Fisher to do this for a month, but he still had to walk around campus with Snorstop plastered on his forehead. All right, we're a little ahead of ourselves already this morning. Two weeks in a row without uh, preaching, I've been sort of ruminating on this text and and have a lot to say, and there's a lot here, so I'm going to try to speed through it really quickly. Uh, Martin's on computer today. He saw how many slides I uploaded for the sermon, and he's like, if you don't keep it moving, I'm just going to keep those slides going. So uh, you can blame me, not Martin, for this, all right? Rico uh, kicked off chapter 13 last week and did such a great job, I was able to listen to it online, about how the devil is at work in our world. In fact, this chapter is really one of, if not the most illuminating uh, window we have into how our enemy works. I think it's helpful to think about it that way. That of all scripture, this is sort of the most in-depth picture or explanation of what we're up against. This is how the devil works. And John is showing us this in very vivid picture. Ultimately, the chapter is about what? The chapter is about beasts, right? Frank did a great job depicting these beasts. These are the stagehands. These are the minions. These are the, uh, the puppets of the dragon, right? And so the first half of chapter 13, we get the, the puppet from the sea, the sea beast. And now this morning, as Rob read for us, we get the puppet from the land. The one that ascends from the land. Now I fully agree with Rico that the sea beast is a scriptural echo of that Old Testament book of Daniel. By the way, this is, you guys know William Blake is one of my favorite painters. This is Blake's version of the sea beast and the land beast. I love this painting. This chapter is not just riffing off Daniel. It absolutely is riffing off Daniel. But there's another Old Testament book that it's actually picking up imagery from, and that's the book of Job. The book of Job, you'll remember, is about uh, God's servant who is persecuted. The devil is persecuting God's servant, and, and God is letting this happen. And then what happens is they sort of sit in the dust, Job and his friends, after it's all said and done, and he's miserable, and they're all complaining about, why did this happen? What made these things happen? They all have their own theories, right? And Job says that it's not fair. That's his main point. It's not really fair, right? So God interjects at the end of the book of Job. This is where we want to pick it up. Job accuses God of not being fair, and God's response is to ask Job, well, Job, what what is fair? What would you say is fair? You, You think you know better, Job? You think that you have the perspective of God? You think you can handle yourself, you think that you can save yourself, that in in confronting these beasts that you can overtake them, you can defeat them? I love this part of the book. I'm I'm just going to read it for you. This is God 
uh, responding to Job's accusation. And he's talking about the beasts. He says this, Job, brace yourself like a man. Brace yourself like a man because now I'm going to question you. You've been questioning me, now I'm going to question you and you are going to answer me. That's how it's going to work. God says, look at the Leviathan. You know what the Leviathan is? It's the sea beast. That's what it is. Look at the Leviathan. Can anyone pull it with a fish hook or tie down its tongue with a rope? Can anyone catch it? Can you master it? Can you, can you be the Lord over it? Can you tie its tongue? Can you tell it what to say and what not to say? I don't think so, Joe. Look at the behemoth. The behemoth is the land beast. Can anyone capture it by the eyes, tell it where to look and where to go? Or trap it and pierce its nose, right? The piercing is the sign of ownership in the ancient world. By the way, if you encounter a woman with a pierced nose, do not ask if they're a behemoth. I can tell you from experience that does not go well. In other words, God is saying to Job, do you really think, I mean, if we're really honest, do you really think that you can do this on your own? Do you think by your own power and will and volition that, that you can master these crazy creatures, these beasts of the land and the sea? Job, they're going to eat you for lunch. And they're going to mock your confidence. They're going to mock your arrogance that you thought you could do this on your own. And if you can, God says to Job, if, if you really can, he says, this is an amazing line in the book of Job. He says, then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. That's how confident God is that that we can't do this alone, that Job can't do this alone. If you can do it, God says, I'll be the first to admit that your right hand can save you. And so if this image in the book of Job, along with the book of Daniel, these Old Testament echoes, remember, Revelation says nothing new. We've said that throughout the series. The book of Revelation, the 66th book, the last book in our scripture, says nothing new. It, it reiterates what has been said in the last 65 books, and it does so in sort of a different key, a different register, right? These vivid, four-dimensional uh, images that we are accosted with. So if this image in the book of Job, along with the book of Daniel, are the echoes sort of reverberating in the background of Revelation 13, it helps us understand what this chapter is all about. This chapter, hear me on this, it's about preparing for us to see the need of the lamb that was slain. Didn't Rico do a marvelous job of outlining that last week? Wonderful introduction. The question is, do you understand the beast that you face? Because if we really did, if we're honest, if, if we really understood the beast that we face, then we would know how naive, how foolish, how stupid it would be to try to take them alone. Try to take them and face them without the help of the one who reigns eternal. Without the one in the center, the lamb who was slain at the foundation of the world, the one who wears the crown, the one who, who justly sits on that eternal throne forever. 
Verse 8 has to form the center truth, the, the crux of this entire chapter. And we especially have to remember that this week because we, we sort of divided up the chapter, and in the second half of the chapter, we don't have this reminder. It's all about the beast. And so at the start this morning, I want us to turn back and remember that. Behold the Lamb who was slain at the foundation of the world. This one reigns eternal because of the blood. So why is there a second beast? I mean, truthfully, we get the point from the Leviathan in the first half of the chapter. Why does the devil need to have two pets instead of one? Well, for the rest of this morning, I'm, I'm actually going to unpack two reasons why I think that is. And then at the end this morning, we're going to look at what do we do with those two realities. So this is the first one. First reason why I think there is a behemoth, not just a leviathan. The reality of the two pets or the two puppets of the devil, the dragon, shows us the ultimate falsehood of the devil and his work. Something, again, we've noticed from the beginning of this series that the devil is the ultimate poser, right? Rico did a great job last week of this comparison, wonderful comparison, between uh, the sea beast, the Leviathan, and how it tries to ape or mimic the lamb that was slain, right? The divine son, Jesus Christ. And when Satan realized that he himself could not take the place, could not devour that child, remember right back to chapter 12, and sit on that eternal throne, then he was determined to mock him by mimicking him. He was determined to act like he was the one who was sitting on the throne. He decided to pretend. So I'm going to go through this really quick, but there is a whole lot more here we could unpack. As Christians, we believe in one God, one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. By the way, you know where a great place to learn about that is? Alpha. Alpha, of course, I think is a wonderful sort of introduction to what we mean when we say one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And John's apocalypse shows us that, that we have one enemy, ultimately. One enemy, the devil, that ancient accuser, right? But this enemy has presented himself as dragon, beast, and beast. There's no coincidence here. He is presenting himself like the triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As Christ receives the authority from the Father, so the sea beast, the Leviathan, receives authority from the devil. Right there, direct comparison. And again, in our half of the chapter, as the Holy Spirit glorifies the Son, that is the job of the Holy Spirit, so the land beast, the behemoth, tries to bring glory to the sea beast. Also, we could go into this whole discussion about this uh, land beast who, who brings voice and animating life to the image. Did you pick up on that when Rob was reading it? It's such a strange thing that they erect these images of the first beast, the sea beast, and then one of the, the tricks, one of the signs and wonders that the behemoth does is he brings voice and he brings life to that image. Again, that, that is exactly what the Holy Spirit does. It glorifies, it brings animating life to the sun. The sun is who? The image of the true God. See how this mocking and mimicking is going. 
What are we getting at? Well, John is reminding us that, that this enemy that we have is a three-time loser. He is a triple imposter. This is an evil trinity trying to pretend to be like the true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the triple failure of the enemy is more than just sort of a novel insight, I think. Right? We could read this and say, oh, that's interesting, right? But I think it actually is, is the key for us to understand what is maybe the most controversial, the most talked about, certainly the most debated part of this entire chapter, which is this number, right, that we get right at the end. Calculate this number, John says. It's the number of a man, 666. That's the number of the beast. We've talked about this so far in the series, that the number seven comes up over and over and over again in this book because it is the number of divine perfection. It symbolizes for God's people, God. This holy number. And so 666 represents again this triple failure to be the divine 777. Holy Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we need to talk about this. I know we need to talk about this. I know there's lots of questions, but I I don't want to spend all morning on this. So I'm going to race through it a little bit quickly. If you would like to talk about this further, uh, I would love to talk to you about it. I know this is a real fear for people. I'm not just saying that. I know, uh, you know, they, they don't often skip addresses with 666. Um, Louisiana just changed their, one of their area codes. Imagine having the area code 666 in your phone number. I was playing cards with some of the youth uh, last year at camp, and I put down uh, triple sixes in the game we were playing, and the youth separated them out. It's interesting, hey? There's this real aversion, and I know that it's real for people to sort of react to that number. It's an actual fear. I'm going to attempt the name uh, of this fear. It is <clears throat> hexacosioi hexaconta hexaphobia. There it is. So, listen, party word, right? Yeah, memorize that. Hexacosioi hexaconta hexaphobia. You say it, you know, 50 times, you'll probably have it by that point. The fear of the number 666. Uh, Part of uh, all the confusion around this number comes from another strange word to us, what is called gematria. Gematria, you might have heard of, you probably didn't know the name of it. It's it's the reality that in ancient languages, in their alphabet, uh, letters would be assigned numerical values. So uh, think about languages like Hebrew, Latin, Greek. There would be certain numerical values to each letter. And so what gematria does is it's a simple sum of the numerical values of the letters in, in a name. So I thought it would be fun. I thought, well, I wonder what the Hebrew gematrical value of Oak Park Church of Christ is. And uh, believe it or not, it's 860. So if you didn't know that, and I know a lot of you knew that already. Um, but if you didn't know that, it's 860. What's cool on this page, you can just go to these, there's websites that you can just go to and type in different things. And uh, below it, it says, what other name has the same value in Hebrew? Well, guess what the first one is? Apparently, Baby Yoda. Now, some might say that's a coincidence, but I don't know. 
Baby Yoda and Oak Park Church of Christ, both the same value, I guess. Oh, listen, we're told to calculate the number in John's vision. Unfortunately, doing math in reverse is not always the easiest thing, right? I mean, we're given the answer. We're given the value. But trying to reverse engineer it to know what the name is can be very tricky and very difficult. Here's some names that have come up. In fact, the most common name that comes up in sort of history of interpretation, you can read them there, is, uh, is Nero. I, I don't think it is Nero, and I'm going to give you a really quick explanation why. In order to get Nero, it has to be Hebrew, not Greek, what it was written in. You have to add Kaiser or Caesar to the name, and then you have to slightly misspell it. And to me, like... That's, that's a bit of a reach, all right? Nero was already dead by the time uh, John's visions happened on Patmos. Uh, but there's some other ones. Hitler, uh, Titan was a popular one, Uenthus. Uh, then there's more common, you know, modern ones. Martin Luther, not Martin Hosier, just to make sure there, in case there was any confusion. Uh, Henry Kissinger, Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton. It, it starts to get weird after this, all right? Uh, labor unions, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, apparently. Uh, there was a big one a couple years ago. Some of you might have heard about Monster Energy Drinks. You hear about this? That was a big one. But my personal favorite is uh, Barney. Because the geometrical value of cute purple dinosaur apparently is 666. So, yeah. Um, I think if we're going to talk about geometrical values, I think actually the simplest reading here is that the Hebrew value of the word beast is 666. That's what John's talking right? That is what he's trying to drive home here. And, and maybe it is about a specific person, um, but I don't think we're going to know this side of eternity who that person is. So I take that cue from, from an early Christian writer, second century writer named Irenaeus. Here's why I like Irenaeus on this, because not only does he sort of say, yeah, it probably is a, a person, a specific person, uh, but we're not going to know until we're with the Lord. So let's not t- spend time, you know, debating about it. But here's the other reason I, I like Irenaeus, is Irenaeus was a follower of Polycarp. He says he sat at the feet of Polycarp. What a name, hey? Polycarp. Anyway, many fish. And Polycarp himself sat at the feet of John. So Polycarp was a, a part of that Johannine community. He was, a, a men, he was mentored by John, and then he mentored Irenaeus. And even Irenaeus in the second century, like maybe 100 years after this is written, says we don't know. You know. We don't know what the value is here. So let's not spend too much time worrying about it. But the other thing I want to point out here is there's no other numbers in the book of Revelation that, that entirely rely on gematria, okay? So I don't want to make too much of something that's unique in the book when we have all of these other numbers in Revelation that we treat as very symbolic, not sort of mathematical, but, but symbols of something else, and then treat this number differently for any reason. So that's sort of where I'm at. Again, 666, I think, ultimately is intended to be a contrast to the divine sevens that are throughout the book. It is failure upon failure upon failure of the dragon and his beasts. I want to dig a little bit deeper here 
Because I think actually the number can be a distraction, but I think what, what John's vision is showing us is really important. And again, it goes back to, to my example of Andrew Fisher and Snore Stop posted on his forehead. Because what John is showing us here is the number will be stamped on the hands and on the forehead. And when you read that, if, if you are familiar with the Old Testament, it should automatically trigger something for you. Oh, I, think I've, I think I've heard that before. What is that about? Why is, why is there a stamp on the hand and the forehead? Well, for the Israelites, for the, the Jewish religion, they have sort of a uh, mission statement. A verse that sort of stands above all verses. And they call it the Shema. S-H-E-M-A. The Shema. And so I think this is actually John sort of doing an anti-Shema. Right? He's doing an anti-Shema just as he's showing us that these, this dragon and these beasts are sort of an anti-Christ. I'm going to read the whole Shema for you. It's from, taken from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 9. You'll probably recognize the, the verse when you read it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. See how this is sort of a condensation, a, a sort of short version, a succinct version of the whole law, right? This is why they would repeat it daily. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road or when you lie down and when you get up. Now listen to this, verse 8. Tie them as a symbol on your hands and bind them to your forehead. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Now what some Jews took literally... There's a lot of weird words in this sermon. I'm just realizing that as I'm... So they, would, they do wear, Orthodox Jews, and have worn for centuries, phylacteries. That's a little uh, box on the forehead that you've seen some Orthodox Jews before, and they'll wrap their hands. Those aren't GoPro cameras, by the way. They contain the Shema in them, all right? And so what some Jews took, literally, we take more as sort of a metaphor of commitment. Like any invisible identity marker, it is revealed in how we live, right? There's a reason it's on our hands and our forehead. Does what you think align with the law of God? Does what you do every day align with God's ways, right? That's why it's the forehead and the hands. Now, Deuteronomy 6 isn't the only time in the Old Testament that we encounter this reality of the forehead and the hands. I'm not going to read them all, but even earlier, as a celebration of the Passover, we're told in the book of Exodus that this observant, observance will be for you like a sign on your hands and a reminder on your forehead of the law of the Lord is to be on your lips. In the prophetic tradition, the prophet Ezekiel says this, that it is to be visible, a visible show on our foreheads of the obedience the ways of God. And the prophet Isaiah, a little bit later, at the, says at the end of time, it will be written on our hands, what? I am God's. I am God's. What we have done with our lives will show it on our hands. You see, it's all about ownership. It's all about who we belong to. It reminds me of the time that Satan challenged Jesus to a hockey game. One game, winner take all, outdoor rink, no holes barred. Jesus thought about it for a bit and said, 
yeah, I'll take that challenge. I mean, Satan, you, you have no chance. I got Jean Beliveau. I got Gordy Howe. I got Maurice Richard. I got Jacques Plante and Ned. Who do you got? You got nothing. Satan says, I have every referee that has ever lived. Who's going to win this game? All right, that's a cheap shot. <laughs> so the second beast, this, this uh, behemoth, the beast from the land, shows that the dragon and his puppets a false trinity. They are a fake imposter, three-named God. But it also does more than that. This is the second reason, I think, in John's vision we hear of the behemoth. I think it helps us unlock the way that the devil is at work in our world. And this, I think, is probably far more important, or at least far more practical for our day-to-day lives than trying to figure out what exactly this number means. The devil hides himself. Remember we talked about that a few weeks ago. The greatest trick the devil ever played was convincing the world he doesn't exist. And so that's how the devil works. First and foremost, the devil hides in the shadows. And he turns to his beasts and he says, you do my work. You do my work. All right? I am going to hide. I am going to pretend. I'm going to convince the world that I don't exist while you do my bidding out there. And after he has done that, after he has convinced the world, he uses these two monsters the only way he knows how. Now listen very carefully. These are the only two ways the devil works. He overpowers and he undermines. It's that simple. This is the only thing the devil knows how to do. To challenge with power or to undercut and undermine. And these are represented by the beasts in this chapter. If you read nothing else out of chapter 13, if you get nothing else for day-to-day living, I think it's a win if you get this. If you begin to understand the way in which the devil is at work in your life, in my life, in all of our lives, From John's time to our time to the end of time. This is how the enemy works. He uses his minion monsters to overpower us and to undermine God's truth for us. And so last week we read and we heard and we sort of envisioned this beast that was given power from the serpent to wage war against God's holy people and conquer them. That is uh, taken from the first half of chapter 13. Given power to wage war. His desire is to overpower us. Sheer brute force. But we also know that bullies don't just work by trying to overpower us, right? They try to undermine us. They spread lies and they spread rumors. And they tell stories about us. And so this week, we hear about this beast, this land beast, that was given power, what? To deceive the inhabitants of the earth. Manipulation, lies, and deception. The twin pet monsters of the devil in chapter 13 show us the channels through which he is at work. By force and by falsehood. By force and by falsehood he is at work. To what end? Why? Again, over and over in this series. By force and by falsehood he aims to deflect our worship to change us, to turn us away from the Lamb 
who reigns eternally. It all comes back to worship. This book is all about worship. Why is he intent on doing this? Because he hates that we worship the Lamb who was slain. And he will do everything he can, everything in his power, everything in his lies, to get us to turn from that Lamb and to worship anything else. Anything. The land beast is a false prophet. That is the best explanation of what the land beast is. It is a false prophet that leads to false worship. Oh, and by the way, remember, Revelation says nothing new. Matthew 7.15. False prophets would come in sheep's clothing, but they are inwardly ravenous wolves. You guys know how much I like Farside comics? It's a great one. East is posing as the lamb, just as Rico reminded us last week. Or how about going back further into the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 13, 1-3. If a prophet appears who produces what? Signs and wonders. What does the land beast do? Produces signs and wonders. And says, let us follow other gods. Let us worship them. Don't do it. (laughs) Don't do it, it says. That's a pretty simple warning. Deflecting worship is a sneaky affair. Jesus' words in Matthew 24, 24. False messiahs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders. So as to mislead, and if possible, even the elect. This one, this one is really striking for me, this last one. 2 Thessalonians 2.9. When I read this uh, this week in comparison to our passage, it really hit me just how much It says, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. In accordance with how he worked. That's what we're talking about here. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders, again, that serve what? That serve the lie. Power through signs and wonders that serve the deception. And all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing by force and by falsehood through signs and wonders. That's how the enemy works. And so if, if the Leviathan, if that sea beast was a brutal dictator, the behemoth is the marketing genius behind spreading the propaganda. He is the master of spin working through whispers to make those sort of outrageous claims of the first beast sound well, actually pretty good and kind of compelling and maybe that does make sense in the end. I've got a friend who has his PhD in the propaganda of Nazi Germany. This is a fascinating area of study. He says people often ask him, how, how did we get Hitler? He says, because his spin doctors worked over him. He said the machine of propaganda in pre-Nazi Germany was unbelievable and terrifying at the same time. Not me, you say. Not me, I'm, I'm way too discerning for that. I would never buy the lies of the behemoth. Congrats, you've just bought the oldest lie in the book. That is how the devil works. We all get caught up in these lies. Just as, just as we said earlier, this idea that 
that this lie tells us we can do it on our own. Job's right hand. I can defeat him. I don't need any help. I'm okay on my own. I'd rather not open up and be vulnerable. I'd rather not ask for help. Right? That's the oldest lie in the book. But I'll tell you, naming those lies, identifying them in our lives, and naming them out loud is a very, very powerful thing to do. So let's name some of the behemoth's lies. Stealing this list directly from the 17th century Puritan writer Thomas Brooks. Tell you what, if you've never read Puritans before, there's this group in America and England, 16th, 17th, 18th century. Some of the stuff, I'll tell you, I'll be perfectly honest. I read some Puritan stuff and I'm like, what? That is weird. And sometimes I read some Puritan stuff and I think, this guy was living in the 21st century. It's unbelievable the, the sort of timeless truth that is spoken. So Thomas Brooks has this book, it's a great title, it says Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And he breaks it down into sort of two lists. And as much as it pains me, I know I'm running out of time, so I'm not going to comment I'm not going to sort of expand on the list. I'm just going to read them to you and explain them briefly. And then I want to I close with uh, some reflection on them in the end. But he breaks them into two lists. He breaks them into self-talk temptations and self-talk accusations. I thought that was a great sort of distinction in how the devil works. And so he has seven self-talk temptations. And don't be afraid. If you hear one that speaks to you, you can call out an amen. All right? I mean, here's the, here's the reality. When, when you recognize a lie that Satan has been telling you through his beasts, boy, it hits hard. You say, oh, I, I say that to myself all the time. Wow, that's, that's that voice nagging in the back of my head that just sort of rattles around that I, I can't seem to get rid of. Or, or you say, I thought that was true. I thought... That was God's truth. That's a lie? So let's, let's name them. Self-talk temptations from Thomas Brooks. He shows you the bait and he hides the hook. Classic. He shows you the immediate payoff, the, the pleasure of what you are thinking. Oh, I want that. I want it now. And he hides the long-term pain and effects and brokenness of that pleasure. He rationalizes sin as virtue. I'm not greedy. I'm just frugal. I'm not an alcoholic. I, I'm just very social. I'm not nosy. I'm just very concerned. I'm not a gossip. I'm just a helpful communicator. You get the point? You feel it? Yeah. I feel it. The devil shows the sins of others, especially, Brooks says, this is interesting, especially the sins of Christian leaders. And it sort of rationalizes it for us. Oh, he did it. It's okay. I, I can do it. Oh, it. If she's struggling with that, then it must be okay for me to struggle with that, too. Number four, by overstressing God's mercy. 
Just do it. I mean, God has to forgive you anyway, right? I think that's his job, right? That's, that's the whole thing about God. Just do it and then ask for forgiveness, right? Number five, by making them bitter over suffering. This one hit me. By playing the victim. Playing the victim. I deserve this little indulgence. I have been so good. I did all my chores. Everything my wife told me to do. I can get just this one little indulgence. Number six. By showing Christians how many bad people supposedly have great lives. Oh, what's the point? Right? What's the point? Look look at so and so. I mean, they're basically evil incarnate and they're living it up. They're having a great life while I struggle. By the way, the key word here, supposedly, right? That's a great lie word. Finally, number seven of the self-talk temptations. The devil does it by comparing one part of our life to another. Oh, I am such a good son and husband. I mean, I'm a mafia hitman who kills people. But other than that, right? I mean, we laugh. That's maybe an extreme example, but it's true. I mean, they've done these studies on even, you know, serial killers. And this is, this is a way that they sort of uh, rationalize it in their mind. Oh, I'm so good in every other area of my life. I just have this little killing habit. That's no biggie. Right? All right, on to the self-talk accusations. Here, Brooks lists four. He says, uh, by causing us to look more at our sin than our Savior. And again, I want to remind you three weeks ago. This this is exactly the main point of the message three weeks ago. This idea that sometimes we can get so obsessed with the enemy and his work and what is going on in our life and how we keep messing up and how we keep deflecting our worship and how we can never measure up and we stop looking at the Lamb. You see, even though it's self-deprecating, even though it's, it's sort of, oh, I'm the worst, I, I can't do anything right, guess what it's doing? It's putting the focus on me. Brooks says, this is classic devil lies. Why? Because God has asked us to look on His Son, the eternal Lamb, not on us. Number two, by causing us to obsess over past sins that have done damage that cannot be undone. I love this one. I love this one because you know why? It doesn't minimize things in the past. It doesn't say, oh, nothing matters in the past. Nothing, there's no damage been done. It's all okay. Don't worry about it. It says, yeah, that was real. And that hurt. And that was, that was damage. Damage that's probably going to last the, your whole life. But we've got to stop dwelling on it. You have got to learn to to acknowledge it and name it and leave it in the past. Number three, by making them think that their troubles must be punishments from God because he's mad at them. Yeah, you feel that one, eh? I, uh, I hear you on that one. Right? And then it gets into this obsessive spiral. You been in that spiral? Oh, why did I do this? What did I do here? Oh, there's punishment here looking for it in every place, right? 
and then it leads to some of the other lies. I told you I wasn't going to comment on these. Okay, I got to get through them quicker. All right, number four. By making people think that their inner struggles and feeling are unchristian. Now, I'll tell you that I think actually for men, and I don't, I don't want to generalize too much here, but I think for men, this one rings true especially. I remember uh, being 20 years old and being in a men's breakfast, and the, it was a guest speaker came in and said, uh, well, I'll just name it from the start. Every man is different. Every man will struggle with different things. But he said, I'll name my three, and then you tell me if they're the same three for you. Lust, pride, power. Every hand in the room went up, right? And he said, uh, let me guess. You think that when you have those temptations, when, when you commit those sins, when you act out in those ways, you think, oh, no Christian would ever act that way. No good Christian would ever struggle with those struggles. Right? Name that reality. Name that lie. And that's the first thing I want to close with this morning. Two points at the end here. The lies of the behemoth need to be named. Right? They lead in two different directions. They lead us to sort of carefree pride and they lead us to self-loathing shame. See how those are sort of ends of that spectrum, that's where the devil wants us. As far away from the lamb as we can get. Carefree pride or self-loathing shame. So name it. The behemoth is doing this to deflect our lives of discipleship away from the worship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so identifying and recognizing those lies helps us to talk back to the devil. Talk back to those voices, those temptations, those accusations in our lives that rattle around, that we don't know where they come from. And so over the years, I've discovered that I easily fall into a few of these lies, habitually, over and over again. And then I started to recognize the voices of those lies. And I started to realize they were lies, that it was the behemoth telling me these things, and that I needed to get them out of my life, and so I named them as lies and talked back. Guess what? The devil's pretty smart. Soon enough, I found out there were other lies that I started dwelling on. And so constantly reviewing those things is a need in the Christian life. Remember that first lie that the serpent tells the woman in the garden? Did God really say that? Right? Did God really say you shouldn't eat of the fruit? So learn to name the lies. But playing defense only gets you so far. And so I'm going to circle back right where Rico ended last week as well to verse 8. Because that's our offense, friends. Our offense is behold the Lamb who was slain at the foundation Focusing on the eternal lamb, slain, but now alive forever, for eternity, is the only offense available. Remember God to Job. If you can handle these beasts, I mean, if, if you really think you can conquer them on your own, well, have at her. I'll admit that it's by the strength of your right arm. But we can't, right? I mean, we just talked about that. That's one of the lies that we need to identify. So here's the good news of the gospel on a morning that could become sort of mired in just talking about the work of the devil. 
The slain lamb takes us off that roller coaster of pride and shame. We don't have to feel those extreme pride moments and those extreme shame moments, most of which I sort of oscillate on a daily basis from one to the other. Because it's by the blood. You see, there's no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because the blood of the Lamb has taken it away. That is the good news of the Gospel. There is no shame left to be had. Any shame that we hold is shame that we are wanting to hold on to. Because it has no right over us. And we can name that lie because of the offense of the Lamb who was slain. Through the waters of baptism, the name of the true Trinity has been stamped on your forehead and on your hand. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Like Isaiah says, we will open our hand at the end of all time and it will say, I am God's. I am God's. We come to the table, we're reminded of the cost of that reality. That our, our pride is taken away, our shame is taken away, so that we can live as we are truly called to live, as followers of Jesus, as the ones worshiping the Lamb who was slain. Why? Because He did not withhold His only Son. While the devil has puppets that he plays with, our God sent His one and only Son. Not to do signs and wonders alone, but to walk that lonely path to the cross. For His blood to be poured out. For His body to be broken. Represented in this cup and this loaf. Would you bow?